The last few weeks we've been speaking about faith. You know, faith is an interesting thing. Faith is something that it's vitally important to the life of a Christian. And, you know, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the last few weeks, and I don't want to go back to dig into all that, but I think it's important that we fundamentally review it, that, that life is, the life of a believer is so basically um, dependent on faith, it's like the oxygen we breathe. I mean, if I don't breathe oxygen, I'm going to die. And if I don't have faith, I will end up dying. I just, we can't be a Christian, obviously. We just can't be a Christian if we don't have faith. Faith in the life of the believer is that fundamental. And it's also, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it's impossible to please God without faith. It says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now we also talked about that God has given every man a measure of faith. God is the author of faith. Not me, not you, not any other religion. God is the author of faith and he has given every man a measure of faith as said in Romans chapter 12 verse 3. For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So God gives every man a measure of faith. And that measure of faith is what we need to have to get into a saving knowledge of Christ. That is the faith that takes us into our initial walk with Christ. But that level of faith needs to increase over time. We're not to stay with that initial measure of faith, otherwise we would be spiritual babies forever. And we talked about how that's not healthy. We need to grow. We need to grow physically. We need to grow spiritually. So that measure of faith needs to grow. But that... that that measure of faith, though, is pleasing to the Lord. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, it says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, that He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that, measure, that initial measure of faith is enough that no man can say, I don't have faith, or I didn't have faith, or he can't, he can't blame God. When he gets to heaven and stands before God on Judgment Day, he can't blame Him and say, God, you didn't give me enough faith. It's God's going to say, I did. Every man has, the, has the, that measure of faith. And then the Apostle John writes that, that the power of the Holy Spirit engages the faith of a person that urges him to accept Christ. And apart from the Holy Spirit, no man can come to the Father. But the Holy Spirit engages that faith or initializes it or activates it. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And then I will raise them up on the last day. So God is faithful to give us the measure of faith. He's faithful with the Holy Spirit to draw all men, and He wants all men to be saved. He doesn't want any man not to be saved. There, we, we, don't, we believe, that the, and God's Word is very clear in this, that it is given to all men the opportunity to be saved, not just a select few. All right, so now all men. And so don't get worried about it if you don't think you have had an opportunity to receive him because God wants you to be saved. And he will give you an opportunity. He, he has given you the faith and he gives all of us an opportunity to get saved. And then from that moment of conversion, the measure of faith needs to be invested and grown into a fuller and growing faith that brings us into the character of Jesus. 
This is where then we have to allow our faith to grow so that we change. It's not me changing myself to be a holy man. It's me allowing the faith of God to increase in me so that the character of Christ becomes alive in me. He changes me. The Holy Spirit changes me so that I can be like Christ. Because in myself, I can't be. The the heart is inherently evil. I don't care how hard I try on my own, I cannot live a godly life. It's only through the, the increasing of my faith that God can then allow the character, my character to be changed to be like Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is where I'm going to take off from today. Faith must be combined with action or works if it's going to be alive. I have to combine my work, my action, with my faith. We've been talking about faith for two solid weeks because it was important that we make sure that we understand the foundational element of faith before we talk about action. Otherwise, it becomes a self-work approach. And that's not right. So we have to make sure that we establish our faith, know how important it is, know how fundamental it is, know that we're responsible to grow our own faith, and then we allow God to work in us so that I do works as a result of my faith, not to increase my faith. There's a fine line there. And this is what I want to talk about today because faith combined with action results in a godly reaction. God's pleased with faith. The act of conversion is a gift of God. God gave man the ability to be redeemed and be reconciled and to be brought back into relationship with him as a gift. He didn't have to give us that. He didn't have to, but he decided to give his son, as Riley talked about in in the opening this morning, about how he willingly gave his son for us. It's a gift. But the problem that most of us have, I believe, as a church, modern-day church, is that we focus so much on the conversion experience that we don't go back to what God's original intention was for us. We spend more time thinking about God's redemption and God's forgiveness and, and, and the cross, which is all very important, by the way. I'm not demeaning that at all. I'm not saying that. It is very important. But we can't just spend our time focusing on that. We have to think about day two, day three, day four, day five. We have to think about the rest of our life after conversion. And this is where I'm at today because verse 10 of this passage I just read in Ephesians says this, For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This verse is telling us that we were created by God for a purpose. What is it? What's the purpose God's creating us for? I just read it. Works. Listen, 
God did not create us to be converted. He did not create us to be redeemed. Think about this. Now, this has to sink in because this may seem superficial, but let this sink into to us. God created man without the need to be converted. He created Adam and Eve perfectly, and it wasn't until they sinned was conversion required. So God's original intention for us was not to have to be saved. His original intention was for us to do, work, to do works. His original intention was for fellowship and work in the kingdom of God. And it's like God had the assignment already completed in his mind for us when we got to school that day. It's like the teacher already had the homework determined and already assigned before we ever got to class. And, and, and the original purpose of the teacher doesn't change with the behavior of the student. <laughs> it might distract the teacher, but the purpose doesn't change. The student or the teacher came to class with a job assignment. He came to class that day to teach and then to give homework. And just because the kid acts up doesn't change the intention of the teacher. The teacher still has to teach. And that's kind of where we're at today. So why is this so important that we think about this? I believe it's important that we understand the sequence of events here so that we can see, that God, so we can see the real priority that God has placed on his creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Did you hear that? He put man in the Garden to work it. And to take care of it. God gave man an assignment. Before man was ever created, before sin ever came into the world, God gave man an assignment, and that is to work and take care of my creation. Our job was to work alongside in the garden that he created. God was there. He would come down and walk in the cool of the evening with Adam. And I'm sure they would talk. I'm sure there would be an education process. God gave Adam a lot of responsibility. He gave Adam the responsibility to name all the animals and to, and to do all the, you know, he was a herbologist. And he was an animologist or whatever that guy is called. But he gave him the job to, to be the biologist there to name everything. And so there was some work and God had to impart knowledge into Adam. And, and there was this cooperative effort of God and man, God and man working together in the garden. That was God's original intention. And it wasn't until the enemy came in and blew it for us. Now, let's be careful here. Let me back up a little bit. See, God gave us boundaries. Nothing wrong with boundaries. God gave man Everything he needed and ever wanted. You've got to imagine the Garden of Eden was not slim pickings. The Garden of Eden must have been an amazing place to live. Because God called it good. When God created it, he said, it's good. And if God calls something good, it must be pretty good. <laughs> it must be pretty awesome. So the Garden of Eden must have been everything man could have ever wanted. But yet God gave man boundaries even in the midst of of good. If you continue reading in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, it says, 
And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for then, for when you eat it from it, you will certainly die. So even in the midst of opulence and greatness, God still put boundaries. Now, it's in our human nature to want boundaries. In all honesty, we want boundaries. We think we, we think we want to live free. We think that freedom is all, everything there is. But in all honesty, if you really get honest with yourself, you appreciate the boundaries that are placed on you because God created us with a need for boundaries. People that are unbounded or don't have boundaries, they have no satisfaction in life. They always want more. They always need something different. They're never satisfied with what they've been given because there's no boundaries placed on it. We appreciate boundaries. Every time I get in a car and drive down the road, I appreciate boundaries. I appreciate that there's a stop sign there and, and everybody's going to stop. I appreciate the boundaries of a stoplight. I appreciate the boundaries of a speed limit. Well, not really that one. But I, appreciate, but I appreciate the boundaries that we have because it protects us, right? Boundaries aren't meant to hurt us. God, did never give, God never gives one boundary in God's word that is ever intended to hurt us. When God says no, remember what we've always said in here? God doesn't say no because he wants to keep you from having fun. He says no because he doesn't want you to hurt yourself. Boundaries are good, Okay. He didn't create us with an evil heart. God didn't create us, even though the Bible says today that we are inherently evil and the, and the evil of our heart. But we weren't created that way. That was a choice that Adam and Eve fell into when they chose to disobey. It changed everything. God created man to live and work in the garden for all eternity without ever having the need to be saved or a conversion experience that's the way God originally intended for us. And therefore, it's important for us to understand that God's original intention still exists. He's the teacher. His lesson plan doesn't change because we screwed up. His intention is still the same. So what does that mean for us today? Why is it so important that we talk about this when it comes to faith and action or faith and works, as some call it? Because I believe that one of the biggest tools the enemy has is to continue to use against mankind deception like he used against Eve. See, the issue of making good choices proves that one loves God. Part of the reason for the boundaries that God gives. And works... Prove our love. And see, that becomes a major issue in so many religious circles today. So many people, when you, as soon as you say works in relationship to Christianity, they think, oh, you're talking about salvation-based works. No, I'm not talking about that at all. We're saved by the gift of God's grace. But yet the works come right along with it because that was God's original intention. See, when I become saved... And like we've already talked about, we all are intended to be saved. When I have the acceptance of Jesus Christ into my life based upon his forgiveness and the cross that he bore for me, all that does 
that puts me back to square one. That puts me back to the Garden of Eden where God originally created man. And I'm really back to the very basic element of my Christianity because I'm back to square one. I'm I'm back to God's original intention. Really, what we're living in right now, because Adam and Eve fell, we're living in plan B of God's intention. God God didn't have to save us. He didn't have to put a plan together for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, but he chose to because he loves us so much. So now we're living in plan B, and now when I come to that saving knowledge of who Jesus is, now I'm really taking myself back to the Garden of Eden where I'm placed in for God as pure, holy, and righteous because the blood of Christ covers me, and he takes away my sin. So now if that's the case, now let's go back to God's original intention. His original intention was to what? Work. Now I work. Now I do exactly what God has asked me to do because I'm back to where he wanted me to be in the first place. And I think that is how we, we can get so um, discombobulated and we can get so confused because we think that God's intention was to bring Jesus to die on the cross and for us to be saved and for us to go through all that. And as important as that is, that's his second best option for us. But it's better than the alternative. It's better than not having that option. So thank God that he loved us so much that he was willing to put plan B in place. So now what does that mean to me today? What that means to me is that now that I understand that, now we need to be obedient to God's word. And now we need to go back and say, okay, he's put me in a garden to work. This is where faith and action come into our lives today. Because, see, if once I'm saved and reinstated into the family of God, I'm really coming into God's business. I'm in God's family business now. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go in that rabbit trail. But it was kind of funny. I was thinking of family businesses. And I was thinking of Duck Dynasty. Okay? Family business. Okay? We're in the business, we're in God's family business of making duck calls. Okay? Whatever it is. But we now are, we're now back in his family. And, and now we do what we're supposed to do as a good family member. And that is, we work. Not to bring me into the family, but as a part of the family. And that is the fine line that people get between legalism and works-based salvation. And they're missing the whole point. Because as we said earlier, when we have faith that grows, that faith changes us into the character of Christ. So that now I do and live to obey Christ because I love him. Because I want to. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because he changes me because now I am like him. Like, I, like he was originally created me to be in the Garden of Eden. I was like him, and I want to please him. And therefore, my work now comes in my garden of my life. To work my garden. To work the church. To work in our community. To do the things that, are, that I'm obedient. You love God, you prove him through your work. You prove him through your obedience. That's not works-based salvation. That's just being part of the family. Just pleasing my father. That's just doing my job. 
Helping my brother, helping my sister, carrying my load. It's called being productive and functional. It's called telling a liar, the devil, he's a liar, because he brings deception to us all the time that says, you don't need to work. Did God really say? Does that sound familiar? Did God really say? Where did they first hear that? Garden of Eden. He comes in with partial truth. Did God really say that you can't eat? Does God really say you have to work? Yes, he does. He does. That's what he said. I created you to work. Take care of the garden. And as we live and become part of the family, and as we understand that his intentions are once more being accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound familiar? Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And so forth. Can, let me ask you a question. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can will and work be a similar meaning here? Your will in heaven be on earth. Can your work in heaven on earth be the same? Can God's will inquire work? See, the Greek word for will can be translated as desire. And desires are fulfilled with work. You don't, if, you, if you desire something, what do you do? You go for it. Do you play for it or do you work for it? You work for it. If God's desires are to be in heaven and earth together, then you work for your desires. And when we pray this way, we're actually praying with Jesus that the will of God be considered the desire of God which is accomplished through the work of men and God as we work together to accomplish what God wants done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the fulfillment of God's original intention. Now understand that Satan is still active today. And he's still alive in, this, in our garden today. And the last thing he wants is for any of God's children to be actively and productively working in the garden. He has a plan to destroy the effort and the work that we're to do. And how might he do that? How do you think Satan comes to you today about work? Um, laziness is a word that probably all of us don't like. I don't like the word laziness because I don't mind being a couch potato and watching TV and some things. My wife will tell me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I have to fight it, okay, physically and spiritually. That's one of my failures, one of, one of my faults. I like to be lazy. <sighs> Working can be drudgery. Working can seem like a legalistic demand on one standard of, wor of, of work. And whenever it's mentioned, whenever work is mentioned along the words of, of grace, the enemy comes in quick to try to distort it. It comes in quick to try to bring confusion and to bring um, a, a, a misunderstanding of the words. The work that we are to be done in our life really is to bring out the faith in our life. 
And this brings us back to the discussion of faith and how work or action must be associated with the faith that makes it effective and alive. And, and James, the brother of Jesus, probably uh, in his book, probably speaks the most directly about faith and works. And he, says, he tells us in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Pretty direct. Pretty, pretty good word here, isn't it? James is pretty emphatic that words, that, that deeds and work or, and action must accompany faith if it's going to be alive, if it's going to be active. Action proves faith, not faith proving action. Think of it that way. Action proves faith, not faith proving action. I can have faith in lots of things, but if I don't do anything, my faith dies. It's not productive. It's a dream. Doesn't work. So count to, to counter the confusion that the enemy wants to bring into our lives about faith and action, we have to understand that once again, God's purpose, his original design for us, is to be a worker and to be cooperatively working with him in the garden. When sin entered the world through that act of obedience, disobedience, that changed everything for man, but it never changed the original intention of God. It never changed his original intention. We, did, we didn't shake God up when man sinned. But it changed it for us drastically. So the plan B that God has given to us is an amazing gift that God gives. His original plan was for us to be in fellowship with him and to cooperatively work in the garden of his creation. Now, the Garden of Eden today in our lives can be in a micro and a macro perspective. Okay, what is the garden then? If we're, in, if we're told to work in the garden, what is the garden? Well, on a micro perspective, the garden is my heart. The garden is my life. I am to work in my heart. On a macro perspective, the garden is God's kingdom. It's his church. It's his community. It's our home. It's our family. It's our, it's our city that we live in. It's the people that's our neighbors. So we're to work the garden on both a micro and a macro perspective at both times. And we're to take responsibility for our work in our garden. And it's important that, those are, that we recognize that these are huge responsibilities. Huge responsibilities. And, and we shouldn't take that lightly. We should never go back and say, well, we're saved by grace, therefore I can justify laziness. I can never justify being lazy. I try all the time. And my wife says, get off the couch. You can push that vacuum just as good as I can. You can wash the dishes just like I can. You can help me make the bed. I mean, I'm tired of it. Chris, leave me alone. No, I'm kidding. 
But she's absolutely right. She's absolutely right that, that I have to understand that and, and I need to take that into my spiritual life. How many times do we call ourselves spiritual and then do nothing? Come on. How many times do you say, I'm so spiritual? I've, lived, I've been a Christian for 30, 40 years. All right, let me be really careful here. What do you got to show for it? Wow, I'm not sure I like where this is going. But let me say it because I believe God's asking me to say it in love. But let me ask you, for all those Christians that have been here all these years, how many people are sitting in this church because you asked them to come? How many people have you prayed into salvation? It's quiet in here. And it needs to be quiet in here because it's just serious questions. These are the questions that you're going to answer before God someday. You're going to say, what did you do with my original intention in your life? Were you lazy? Were you spiritually lazy? Did you think that my grace was going to cover your laziness? Well, let me tell you, it's not. And I say that because I see a big finger looking right back at me. God is not going to give any of us a buy. Matthew chapter 7, where he says, where we go into heaven thinking that we're going to get a great judgment. He says, well, we, we say we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. He's going to say, I never knew you. Why is that? Because we forgot his original intention. We spent our time at the conversion moment and never grew up. Then we took our own faith. We took our own direction. We took our own decision. We wanted, we wanted a feel-good religion. We wanted something that we, could comp, that we could conquer in our own ability. We forgot the urgency of faith. That faith requires belief in something that's illogical. The biggest challenge for me is believing something that I can't understand. And I can't understand God. But my faith has to be rooted in God. And that I need to work hard I need to work and that work in the micro and macro level in the micro level the work becomes living a holy life becomes saying no to the things of this earth that's work to say no no I don't need that pleasure I don't need that thing that I think is going to give me satisfaction I don't need that not because I'm legalistic don't listen so close listen it's not because I'm legalistic. It's because I love Jesus so much I don't want to do anything but that would displease Him. The old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His face and His glory. What is it? Sing it, Jackie. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. The more I look at Jesus, the more my character changes. Amen. That's good news, folks. That's good news because I've got somebody there that's going to help me with the work. He's going to help me. I can't do it alone. And this isn't a self-based, this isn't a self-helps session to say how we're going to make ourselves better. No, it's the love of Christ that comes in and love makes us better. 
But I have to willingly want that. And I have to be willingly coming into his presence on a regular basis. And I need to be willingly in the word of God. And I need to be present where, I'm, where I can be fed. I need to be present in church and Bible studies. I need to be present. I can't say, God, I'm living on an island. I believe there's such an urgency in my spirit about faithfulness to the house of God. And I say it in a way that people could say, well, you're the pastor, and yeah, you want people to come and listen to you all the time. You know. But hear my heart on this. Because I really believe the Lord is changing me when you come to a church, and I hope that you go to a church that the pastor, the leadership, is diligently seeking God. Not just coming in to get a paycheck and go home, but diligently seeking God for the word that God wants for this body, for this community, for this day. Daily food. Give us our daily bread. All right? You've got to trust God that he's going to speak through his leadership. doesn't mean that people don't make mistakes. Don't, I'm not, just hear me. Please hear my heart. God will use people in our errors. I mean, he spoke through a donkey. Come on. He can speak through a man. Right? So church is important from the perspective of getting good meat that takes us into today's activities that God wants for this church today. Now, some will say, yeah, but, you know, I listen to Creflo Dollar, and I listen to any other church on TV, and I'm not saying anything bad about them because they're good. They can give you some good stuff. But Creflo Dollar has, has, knows nothing what's going on in Charlevoix. He doesn't have a clue what's going on right now in your life in this community. The only person that does is the people in this community. So if you want to stay in step with God, what you need to be doing today in your community, you need to be in church. I got quiet again. But seriously, you need to be in a position where you can be fed daily from where God can take you where you are locally positioned. You're not sitting in Creflo Dollar's church wherever it's at. You're sitting in Charlevoix, so you should be in Charlevoix getting fed because God wants something to do here specifically, and you can't work the garden here if you're not getting God's word for here. Therefore, church is vitally important, and that's where the enemy again will come in and will destroy everything because he'll say, you don't need church, you're a super spiritual man. You can pray at home, you can sing at home, you can listen to at home. Yes, you can, but you're not working the garden. Whoa. You're not working the garden that God has placed you in if you're not here getting fed where God wants you to be fed in your local church. I don't care who the pastor is. I'll sit, I'll trade places with you. I'll sit in your seat. It's a lot easier sitting in your seat. I guarantee you, it's a lot easier. I just as soon sit there many times. But the fact of the matter is, you're given a task. I'm given a task. And if we don't do it together, we're not working God's garden and we're failing. Oh, Jesus, help us. We're failing. And that day, Matthew chapter 7, I'll tell you what, go back and read that. If that doesn't scare you, 
If that doesn't scare you where it says, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. Listen, that scares me to death. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm not doubting my salvation, but it certainly puts me on an act of accountability. It certainly puts me area where I need to say, God, yes, I want to do what you want me to do. So every morning I get up and say, God, help me in your garden today. What do I do? Help me. What, what am I tending today, God? What bush needs to be tended today? What grass needs to be cut today? What, what, what tree needs to be trimmed today, God? Help me to live and work and functionally be part of the garden, micro and macro. Father, we just love you, Jesus. God, we just are so challenged by your word. Every time we open it, God, if we come in with an open heart and an open mind, God, we can sense your direction and leadership constantly. And God, what a gift that is for us. What a gift. So God, I just pray now, Lord, as we end this service today, I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to challenge us with the tending of the garden. Lord, we are so thankful for your salvation. We're so thankful for plan B. God, we're not minimizing that when we speak that way. That's not, that's not heresy. That's not talking negative about anything that you've accomplished for us. But God, Lord, that really is a gift. That really is. And so we're thankful. We're really, really, really thankful for that, that you loved us enough to send Jesus. And now that we have that, and now that we have that, God, can you put us back in your original intention? Can we go back to the garden now? Oh, God. Help us to tend the garden. Help us to do the work that needs to be done so that, Lord, one day you'll look down at me and say, Mike, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful. Well done. You did exactly what I asked you to do. You completed the assignment that I gave before the foundation of the world. You completed it because you were faithful in loving me and allowing your faith to grow. God, help us. Help us, Jesus. Lord, thank you for this encouraging word today. And I pray that you would just let this settle in our heart, in our minds. Amen. Amen. Let's sing the song that Jackie's playing before we go, and then we'll pray and we'll go home. Amen. Father, we love you, Jesus, and we just turn our eyes upon you. God, help us. 
Help us in our weakness, God. Help us in our frailties. Help us in our failures. Help us to just continue to keep our eyes focused on you. Help us, God. I know how much you want us to be gazing upon you, so increase our faith. We're asking you to increase our faith. Lord, that we would then be able to really pour our life into you. That we would be able to pour our our heart's effort into the work that you would have us to do, God. And we would do it joyfully and willingly together with you. And we would tend the garden that you have for us. We praise your holy name. We worship you. You're so absolutely worthy to be praised. Thank you. And live with us and go with us now, I pray. You're awesome, God. You're awesome. We praise your name. We praise your name. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.